What is this for? What's give us an overall sense of your capabilities? No, what is this for? What are you selling? Oh, it's a game. A game? Specifically tailored for each participant. Think of it as a great vacation. Except you don't go to it. It comes to you. A wealthy banker becomes entangled in an intricate game, or is it all an elaborate scam? Join us as we chat about the inside of the Harvard Club, my secret nickname for Alexa, and gratuitous butt shots on Lost. Then we find out if 1997's The Game stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say The movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Test of Time. I'm your host, James Brief, and joining me as always is my buddy, my pal, Alan Noah. Hi, that's me. How you doing, James? I'm good. We're recording live. Well, not live because it's a podcast, but live for us. We are in uh, Long Island at your home. Yeah, and I think this might be the earliest we've ever recorded. Usually we record at night, and it is now... 10 a.m. We just had pancakes. We never have pancakes when we record. No, although we technically may have recorded at a Knicks marathon after midnight once. Oh, yeah. I guess it depends on your point of view of when the day starts. Does it officially start at midnight or are you one of those people who thinks it kind of starts at dawn? That's a whole other thing. We won't get into that. But, you know, I recently took a family trip. We went to Costa Rica. I won't bore you with the details, but it was great. And on the ride down, the JetBlue flight had all of these movies. And some of these movies were movies that I thought Eli, my son, would really, really like. One of them was The Water Boy. I was like, watch that. You'll love it. And he was like, no. The only movie he wanted to watch was Scream. But not the first Scream that we did on the podcast from the 90s, the new Scream that is also called Scream, even though it's Scream 5, they just called it Scream. And I was like, well, if he's going to watch it, maybe I'll watch it so we can talk about it because maybe he'll have questions because he'd seen zero of the other Scream movies. It's fine. He was able to kind of put it together. You don't have to have watched the first four. But... The reason why they called it Scream and not Scream 5 is because the Scream movies are all meta and they are talking in the new Scream about the concept of a requel, which is what this new Scream is and what is kind of the trend in Hollywood where it's a reboot slash sequel kind of at the same time. Hence the name requel. And you've used the term legacy sequel. What is that? So a legacy sequel is like Top Gun Maverick, where it is a sequel that is purely a sequel, but it is so many years after the original. It's the kind of thing where like no one was asking for a sequel to this movie. In a few weeks, we're going to talk about Hocus Pocus because they're doing a Hocus Pocus 2. That I would consider a legacy sequel. Like, I don't know what hmm. the official timeline is like maybe a decade or two but something from like say like the 70s 80s that's now getting a sequel 
you know, by that definition, and we will definitely review this film at some point, this would be Tom Cruise's second Lego sequel. This is a deep dive, though. Can you think of what this is Tom Cruise's second Lego sequel to? Risky Business 2, Riskier Businesser. No, but you're very close. It's an early Tom Cruise film uh, directed by Martin Scorsese, if that gives you a, a hint. Oh, right. The... um. The, the pool one? Yeah, The Color of Money. Right, right, right. Uh, that's with Paul Newman, and it's technically a sequel to uh, The Sting. Right. There is a little bit of overlap, like if you were doing a Venn diagram between legacy sequels and requels, like where you draw the line is maybe a little bit fuzzy. I still haven't seen Top Gun Maverick, which is embarrassing, I know, but I assume that there are new characters in this movie, and it's not just purely Tom Cruise, but... From what I understand, the movie is about Tom Cruise's character, and it's not simply meant to get rid of Tom Cruise, and then there will be a whole new bunch of sequels with the next generation, I think. Yeah, without giving any spoilers away, um, that is a correct assessment based on uh, what you've seen. And you really need nothing going into it. You don't need to have seen the first film either. You know, there have been films that have done this well. Uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife, not the Ghostbusters, uh, the Paul Feig directed one with uh, Melissa McCarthy. This is the uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife, the one with Paul Rudd directed by Jason Reitman. And this film is a direct sequel. Oh, well, not a direct sequel of sorts, but it directly takes place in the universe of Ghostbusters 1 and 2. I thought it was excellent. I thought it did excellent uh, work of doing a new story, but also not just little like wink wink to the audience's cameos, but actually worked in like, huh, what would this story be like 30 years later? I very much enjoyed that movie too. I guess that would be more of a requel than a legacy sequel. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think ones that have been worse off, I think uh, the Star Wars uh, sequel trilogy have not been as good as, uh, say, what Top Gun did. Then you have ones like uh, Terminator Dark Fate. This was a weird one because it was sort of a sequel, requel, legacy sequel, but only to Terminator 1 and 2, ignoring all of the others. So I'm not sure what that term would be. I would say that that wouldn't count as a legacy sequel only because they've been churning out Terminator sequels pretty regularly. And okay, fine. Well, this one discounts that one and that one is not canon and whatever. Okay. But in the real world that you and I inhabit, there have been Terminator sequels released every few years. So it's not like there haven't been those movies in the franchise. Actually, I'm not positive about this, but I think the term legacy sequel might even come from... Tron colon legacy because that was like 30 some odd years after the first movie came out and I assume the subtitle legacy had something to do with the plot of that movie but you know that kind of makes sense of like yeah it's a legacy sequel it's a sequel to something that no one was asking for from 40 years ago we haven't heard about this franchise really in all this time maybe there were some comics or whatever but like 
I think that's like a really good example of what a legacy sequel is. Okay, so Prey, which is kind of a rebooting of the franchise, that's not a legacy sequel, but the uh, Blade Runner from a couple years ago, yes. that's legacy sequel. Okay, yes. cool. So, you know, the wrong thing is just wink winks to the audience. We don't need to just see Bill Murray. Uh, we do need to see what happened to Peter Venkman 30 years later. Right. And, you know, what would a guy like Maverick be like in his 50s? You know, I have some hopes for a movie like Indy 5. We'll see what happens with that one. There's going to keep being more and more of these legacy sequels and requels. And Disney just had their D23 event and they announced Disenchanted, a sequel to their movie Enchanted that came out 15 years ago. Was anyone really itching for that? I don't know. Maybe it has some fans, but like here it comes. And, you know, Disney has Hocus Pocus 2 coming out and they just keep making sequels and reboots and live action remakes and things like that. The Mighty Ducks that uh, that show on Disney Plus. Right, 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 right. There is an appetite for these things. And as long as people are willing to watch them, the studios will keep making them. I feel like Fuller House in my mind, was the first of our generation to get something that was purely ours from our childhood and get kind of a reboot. And similarly, you got the Boy Meets World reboot on television, then Cobra Kai, and, and you know, it's kind of started on television, then, then movies. Fuller House, terrible. I watched one episode. I watched the pilot episode uh, of that show just to see kind of the wink winks to the audience. And there were a lot of winks to the audience, but I just didn't care to learn about any of the new characters, nor did I really care about the show back in the day, to be honest. So that's why I didn't watch it. Yeah. But let's talk about the game. This is a movie that you have been talking about doing on the podcast for a while. And it's a movie that I associate with Breakdown, the Kurt Russell movie we talked about a while back. I forget exactly when. But the reason that I associate these two movies together is because long before the Test of Time podcast, I would come and hang out at your apartment and sleep over some nights when I had to get up early the next morning for work. And one thing that you would do from time to time is shove a DVD in my face and say, hey, Al, have you ever seen this movie? This movie's great. You should watch it. And I'd say, Oh, no, I don't think I've ever seen it. And you say, watch it, watch it, borrow it, watch it. And I remember you doing that with Breakdown. And I remember you doing it with the game. So in both instances, I hadn't seen the movies since then. I watched the game that time, however many years ago when you handed me the DVD. And I haven't seen it again since. I know you own it on DVD. Is it a movie you watch semi-regularly? You know, it's the exact same thing as Breakdown, where I saw it exactly once. And the first time I saw it, I was like, whoa. (laughs) So I I watched it once in the theater uh, with the game and then on DVD with Breakdown. And then I didn't watch it again for years. But I was really kind of hanging on that first time I saw it and that wow experience that I had the first time. Got it. I really liked it when I saw it in the theaters in 1997. But I I remember thinking, wow, I don't want to watch this film for like 20 years so I could forget this film. Uh, And this is the kind of film that you don't necessarily want to uh, remember everything about this film when you watch it. Yeah. And I really didn't remember a ton while rewatching it this week. I really only remembered the ending. And I guess we should just put a spoiler warning here like we're going to talk about the ending of the movie and it is a movie with some plot twists i guess so if you haven't seen it and you don't want to be spoiled 
turn the podcast off, go watch the movie and come back. And listen to a different Test of Time podcast episode of ours. Yes, 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 yes. Don't just turn us off, like, permanently. I've given the spoiler warning, so now I can say it. But the shot of Michael Douglas falling at the very end, that was the thing I remembered. Right, right. Um, We actually haven't uh, talked about this film. uh, So let me tell you, if you haven't seen this film or like me, if it's been a while since you've seen it uh, on purpose or not, this film is about Nicholas Van Orton, played by Michael Douglas. And he's this wealthy banker guy who is really successful, but he's lonely. He has no one in his life. And when his estranged brother Conrad, played by Sean Penn, when he suddenly shows up on his birthday, he has a gift. This weird personalized game of some sort that Nicholas, he kind of reluctantly accepts. And Nicholas's life is suddenly turned upside down. It's small at first, but then larger. And he's not clear what's going on. Is this part of a game or isn't it part of a game? And he grows increasingly paranoid as he discovers that there may be more to this game than he thought. And there may be deadly consequences. Dun, dun, dun. So scary. Yes. And to continue those deadly consequences, you don't know whether this game is real. At one point, we think that there is no game. It's just this conspiracy of this uh, secret organization and they're this international uh, Illuminati kind of organization. Or is this guy, Nicholas, is he insane? Is this all in his head? The audience is tricked a couple times just when you think it's one and you're like, oh, it wasn't a game. I was a Illuminati. No, it actually was in the end all a game, all staged by this company that, that makes this game. Right. It's one of those twists where the twist is that there is no twist. And I mean, the name of the movie is The Game. The movie poster is like a puzzle piece. I think the opening credits have puzzle pieces. There's like chess references throughout. And not to mention just the fact that the characters themselves are saying over and over again, this is a game, this is a game, this is a game. So the fact that the big quote unquote twist at the end is it was in fact a game, it's not really a twist. Um, yeah, I guess it's not a twist in that sense, but it's a twist in that, uh, I remember like you, that it wasn't uh, a ruse. That was the one thing I remember that this was all a game. It wasn't a twist in the end, but the first time I'd seen it right before you find out it's a game, I was convinced that this was not a game because, um, he gets this, um, invitation and it just says you're invited to uh, a game and he doesn't know anything about it. Nicholas is in one of these like rich guy clubs, you know, the kind of thing you see in trading places. Yeah. Have you ever been to the Harvard club? No. I've been to the Harvard club and it kind of looks like these kind of places and, you know, very stuffy and rich, rich, rich. and Like mahogany walls and like, you know, leather bound books in the library. Yeah. And one thing I remember about that place is there were portraits everywhere about like you know the president of harvard from 1903 to 1907 and and then this guy you know was the chancellor of harvard during the war and very very uh, old stuff but uh, that's what this place looks like and he's in the locker room changing after like you know squash or something yeah and he overhears these uh, other two guys very very well cast i'll say these guys look so much like they're in this squash club right um and when i was like cast i mean cast not just by the movie directors but by the fictional in movie crs uh, game directors that they they put these actors in but yeah. these guys whisper to each other oh i just did the crs 
chess game and and uh, Nicholas overhears him, buys him a drink, and then it really lends some good validity to it and also to the viewer of this film because, oh, okay, this sounds legitimate. Right, 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 right. This movie does have sort of like that element where it's almost like a movie within a movie where there are actors within the movie itself and things like that. But you didn't tell me how did the movie do when it was released 25 years ago? Oh, that's right, right. So um, it came out uh, nearly 25 years to the day. Uh, it came out on September 12th, 1997. I've seen around $50 million, which sounds about right for a late 90s film. David Fincher was growing in uh, his acclaim, and uh, Michael Douglas is a big star. Sean Penn is a star. There's a lot of like stuff, not necessarily explosions. So $50 million seemed a little big to me, but yeah, it could have been this much. For the budget. Yeah, for the budget. Yeah. Um, It opened at number one with $14 million. It knocked um, Fire Down Below. Who's the uh, star of this film? I have no idea. Hard to Kill. More. Marked for Death. Oh. Oh, uh, 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 Chuck Norris? No, no, it's uh, Steven Seagal. Oh, okay. Yeah, so those are all of his films. And uh, G.I. Jane, uh, that was number two now. Um, this film, uh, it opened at number one with $14 million. It wound up with $48 million domestically, so about three and a half times its opener. Not that great. Uh, $109 million worldwide. The general rule of thumb is you want to make two and a half times your budget to uh, break even. So I wouldn't say this film was a smash hit on DVD, probably, because it's not like it was in the zeitgeist much. So this is the kind of film that probably broke even uh, by now over the years, HBO rights and Showtime, etc. But uh, yeah, not not a smash hit, right? I think this is the David Fincher movie that kind of got lost in between the other two David Fincher movies of the '90s, where Seven and Fight Club were huge, huge movies that everybody was talking about. Those movies, I think, had much bigger twist endings. You know, we talked about Fight Club on the podcast. We haven't gotten around to Seven yet, but like. Those movies really captured the public's interest, and this movie just kind of didn't. That's right. And David Fincher, he is an acclaimed director. He's done lots of great films. Uh, He's still doing them today. Um, And the film definitely has what I would call artsy elements to it. It opens up with this... The opening credits to the Wonder Years filter, you know, with the what would you do? Yeah, yeah, I know uh, what you yeah mean. Th- that kind of filter. It has that uh, 35 millimeter film of family portraits in it. So, based on what you just said, I am going to make a prediction. You do not watch the HBO show Succession. Is that correct? Um, I've seen a few episodes, yes. Okay. Uh, Sarah's had me watch a couple of them. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's in the opening credits of that too, right? Yeah. The opening of this movie is exactly like the opening of Succession. Not like it's kind of similar. I was kind of floored when I was watching this movie because it is this old film strip look, like you're saying. It is of this very, very, very ultra wealthy family. Um, the score is very piano heavy that you're listening to. It's a very, uh, you know, piano driven score. The father in the old footage is very distant from his children. Like, you know, you can tell he's emotionally distant. He's physically apart from the kids. He even walks away from his kids, which is how it ends in succession. 
I was like, holy shit, Succession completely ripped off this movie. Like, if I was David Fincher, I might be a little bit pissed on watching the opening to Succession. Yeah, I was watching this with Sarah, and Sarah's very big in Succession. She's gotten me to watch a few episodes, and she said that too. Um, I think I saw the first episode of it, and then I kind of skipped the credits for, for the next couple episodes. But I did remember it did have that vibe. Also, by the way, I'm... Guessing you didn't recognize him because how would you? But did you recognize uh, Nicholas's father from that old footage? The actor who plays him? No. It's Charles Martinet, the man who plays the Uh, voice of Mario. Absolutely. I saw the name in the credits and I was like, is it that Charles Martinet? And uh, if I were to ask him, he would say, it's a me. That was my Charles Martinet Mario impression. It wasn't terrible, I don't think. No, no, no. It's it's a very good uh, Super Mario 64 opener. Thank you. Thank you. So let's talk about Nicholas, this character. We know that he is an isolated person. We know that he's an asshole. He treats everyone around him like shit. The only people he has to like really talk to are his employees, his lawyer and his housekeeper. He doesn't want to talk to his ex-wife. He doesn't really want to talk to his brother. He kind of humors him a little bit. And We get that it's because he watched his father commit suicide on his dad's 48th birthday. Nicholas was a little boy. We see that in the film strips. It's like is a recurring thing. He kind of has visions of that. And this movie is his 48th birthday. So obviously there are some parallels there and he's worried about turning into his father. I feel like this character is kind of a blank slate. Like I don't find him to be particularly interesting one way or the other. Did you like him? Were you kind of like interested in him? Not just what's happening to him, but like Nicholas himself as a character. Um, I did uh, only because Michael Douglas, he is an excellent, excellent actor. And I think he does put some sympathy in this kind of lonely Wall Street kind of guy. However, I wish they explained it a little bit better. Like there is this relationship he has with his ex-wife, which seems to be very cordial and My backstory is that they really do love each other, but he didn't want to have children. She wanted that whole family life, and he was probably more of a cold guy. She didn't realize how depressed he was when she got with him, but um, they didn't really explore it that well. I wish there was a little bit more, you know, like you say, don't hit me on the head with it. I wish it was, you know, a tap on the head with it. Yeah, no, I think that's totally, totally valid. I think that there is some stuff missing here where, yeah, okay, he was a sad kid, he's a miserable adult, but he did also get married and have a kid. So what went wrong? He was distant. Okay, but there's pieces missing of how this guy turned into the person that he is. And I guess I wasn't sure if I was supposed to be rooting for him and hoping for him to like learn his lesson and become less of an asshole or if no, he's just an asshole and I hate him and I want him to get what's coming to him because fuck this rich asshole. Like I wasn't sure if it was supposed to be one or the other, maybe a little bit of both. You know, I think that's a, a testament to our time that today a super rich guy in this house with the servants is kind of by default kind of a douchebag until he redeemed otherwise. Because I was saying to Sarah when we saw BMW, I said there is never a film where the character is seen driving a BMW and that's a good thing. James Bond is fine, but generally when they zoom in and the guy says, I drive a BMW, that's never usually a good thing for that character. 
I'm not sure if that was the same thing in 1997. I think today there might be a little bit more of a scorn towards these guys. And I think you are supposed to sympathize with him because he doesn't seem to be doing anything wrong. And there's several times in the film when he kind of tries to do the right thing at some points. But I, I wish they did tell you either way, whether this guy was an asshole and he might get a redemption story or whether he's a good guy and we're trying to root for him. Well, couple things. First, especially like when comparing this movie to Succession, the people in that show and Nicholas Van Orton in this movie, they're not just rich. They're not like, oh, you know, someone who's doing pretty well, like the upper levels of upper middle class. No, these are like 1% super, super, super fucking wealthy people who, yeah, you're kind of just gonna sort of hate kind of by default. And he is an asshole in this movie. He is like squeezing out this guy from his company who is a friend of his father. And he's forcing this guy into retirement because his stock shares were a couple of pennies short from what the target was. And the guy's like, hey, man, you know, we go back decades. Can you cut me a little bit of slack? And he's like, no, you're done. The end. Who does this remind you of that we reviewed a long time ago? I'm going to say episode nine or so. Oh, I don't know. I'm drawing a blank. Richard Gere in Pretty Woman. Okay. Richard Gere in that film, he was really squeezing out this, I think it was a shipbuilding company. He was going to like buy it and chop it up in a million pieces and sell it off and put everyone out of business, but he would make a cool million, billion or so. You know, and that makes Richard Gere a quote unquote bad guy in that. But, you know, there is enough reason to say, hmm, do I root for this guy or not? Whereas in this film, yeah, I guess you only see that. And that doesn't necessarily make him a bad guy. I mean, but it would be better to make it more definitive. Is he a good guy getting, uh, getting this game? Game, or is he a ruthless uh, yeah, Richard Gere kind of guy who learns to love in the end? Right, right. I don't think I've ever seen Wall Street, but I'm getting the vibe that the character Michael Douglas plays in this movie is sort of like the Gordon Gecko character in that movie. Just like, you know, a ruthless guy who only cares about making money. Um, I haven't seen that film, uh, so we can review it at some point. I would like that. There is also this element of CRS within the movie that kind of gave me Total Recall vibes. And let me explain that. Like in Total Recall, when Arnold Schwarzenegger is going through all the stuff, he's like, oh, but this is just Total Recall doing it. And in this movie, Nicholas Van Orton, Michael Douglas's character, he's able to, you know, surmise that, oh, if this is the game, then I just need to go to CRS because they are the game company. And I don't know. I feel like that's a little bit like, meta like if you're playing a game then you should just accept that there's people pulling the strings behind the game and you're not like going to expose these people you know well, uh, you know, today, obviously, it would be a Google search. And right. Could this exist? Like a single web page or, you know, an Instagram post about hashtag uh, CRS, I uh, had a great bachelor party. This would be exposed and their exposure would ruin them. But couldn't you maybe just write a thing where like, oh, but CRS can block all references to CRS on your phone or within a, a mile radius of you? I don't know if that's, that's a true. thing you could really do, but I feel like you could write around that. You're right. You could write around that. And another thing I noticed actually might even pick up a little better today is there's a camera that's able to see in his home and you see, oh, it's this huge clown doll that he had dragged into his home. There's a, a camera attached. Wow, it will be so much easier to hide cameras today. Well, you so, don't need to sneak them in. They're already in your house. You already have the 
uh, you know, I don't want to say her name, but the Amazon device, you know, and cameras all around anyway. Yeah, you know what I do when I want to uh, refer to Alexa without saying the name? So that name, the Russian version is Sasha. So I always refer to it as Sasha when I don't want it to, uh, to actually activate. So I say we have to remind uh, Sasha to uh, put a timer on later, but I don't actually want it to go on now. Oh, okay. So I have a nickname for it. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So, you know, with drones and everything, that part of CRS, and they would just call themselves, they would say, we change our name every two months or something. You're right. They would have a way to write around that part that they would eventually be talked about. But um, this is only the second time I've ever seen this film. It's like watching The Sixth Sense the second time. The second time you're watching it, you know the twist and you're looking for all the things you didn't see the first time. And so now you're watching it with the knowledge that, oh, this is all a ruse. So when we meet this character, oh, she's in on it. When we meet these stuffy old men in the country club, oh, they're not legitimizing that actually this probably is real. No, uh, they were in on it too. So I noticed this time there are a lot of things that have to fall into place for it to go right. And they do mention it once or twice in the film. There were contingency plans in case the first outcome doesn't happen. There are a lot of things that Michael Douglas's character had to do. Yeah, and like certain things are more believable than others. Like he has to see that the guy who worked at CRS is an actor. And so he sees that on the TV in the diner when he's talking with his ex-wife. All right, you could make that commercial appear on that TV at that time. I guess that works. But how did you know that they were going to go to that diner? And how did you know that they were going to sit in that exact seat? It seems like a lot of like manipulation to make every little detail work. But I think like the biggest one is when the taxi driver drives Nicholas off of like the the pier into the water and he has to remember that he has this one little lever that he can put into the lock which will manually roll down the window so he can swim up and survive that's a gamble man how do you know that he's going to remember to do that at what point is there a dive team ready to rescue him if he doesn't do that or if he fails or if he does get out of the car but then swims down instead of swims up which is apparently a thing that can happen like There's a lot of stuff in there that they really just have to cross their fingers and hope works out. Yes, but my backstory to those are either the top of this taxi was a convertible and would uh, pop open or something would have happened to save him. However, I did notice that he did sign a waiver. He did really sign his life away on that one, that he's basically signing up for skydiving and he's basically saying that he may die on it. That's my backstory for those things, for all these things that that don't happen. Like at at the very end, he winds up accidentally shooting uh, the next person that comes out of a door because Nicholas is so paranoid and it's his brother and he winds up uh, killing his brother so he thinks and he's now killed his only family he also killed him wrongly and he throws himself off of a building as he falls it flashes back to his father's suicide and this is all coming to a close but it's not actually real because he crashes through a window, a skylight. It was a fake skylight. It was what they call sugar glass or breakaway glass or something. And he falls onto an airbag. He's totally safe. It was a game. The actor within the film that you were referencing, he tells Nicholas, he goes, thank God you jumped because if you didn't, I was going to have to push you off. 
that does show you that they did have elements of what they're supposed to do. I did always have a problem with that uh, line uh, 25 years ago and today. Like, that totally changes his whole, no, I have something to live for kind of thing. Like, oh, I was just murdered. Oh, thank God I was not just murdered. That's very, very true. But I also still don't really get that whole thing of him jumping and then that's the end of the game. There's the whole thing throughout the movie of his father jumped off a building and killed himself and he's worried about will he do the same thing? Is he turning into his father? And then at the end, he does commit suicide with air quotes because it was a game and he's fine. But like then doesn't he kind of lose the game i think the movie could have worked in a very very similar way but it needs like some line of dialogue where he says man i'm so glad i won the game and someone says one you tried to kill yourself you lost and and then maybe it could be something clever of like yeah but you know don't feel too bad everyone loses the important thing is it's over you know something like that but it doesn't show like any growth for the character. Like what was his journey? He did the thing that he was going to do that he was maybe quote unquote fated to do. So what was the point of the game? What was the point of everything he went through? I think I know the answer to that. Uh, something you said before, you said David Fincher in the 90s was known for two films. What, what were those two films you said? Seven and Fight Club. Right, right. Now, when I saw this film in 1997... I knew him by a different film. I knew him from Alien 3. Okay. And I remember he was this hotshot new director. Spoiler for the end of Alien 3, Ellen Ripley, she is standing on the top of this uh, bridge. She has an alien in her belly, and she decides to kill herself. And it was a shocking ending, and I've read since then. There were many, many different Alien 3 scripts, and this was not the uh, foregone conclusion of what was going to happen to her. And it disappointed a lot of people, and it disappointed me, certainly at the time. I haven't seen the film in a while. But I really thought that this was another David Fincher dark film. He's going to kill himself. Maybe we'll zoom in on his dead body and have a, you know, it'll be integrated with his uh, father's dead body. The end. Not too dissimilar to the end of Alien 3. She just kills herself. The end. Flashback to, I think, the first film or something. And in this film, you said something like he was fated to have this happen. That is what I think happened, although I wish they made it seem more obvious there, because I think they should have showed him more suicidal. Maybe even start out the movie with him with a gun in his head or uh, to his head or something. You yeah. know, and he decides to put it down because his, his housekeeper comes in with a happy birthday muffin like she does. And when he started throwing himself down... The first time I saw this, I was thinking of Alien 3. The second time I saw this film, I was thinking of a documentary. Have you ever heard of something called The Bridge? Which is a documentary about the Golden Gate Bridge. I think it's called The Bridge. No. This guy set up a camera facing the Golden Gate Bridge for like a year. He basically recorded like a hundred suicides or something. And there's a couple people that survive. And this guy said something to me that is... This is the best anti-suicide uh, quote I've ever heard. Uh, obviously, this guy was super depressed and had horrible things happening to him. He said, I realized in that moment that all of my problems in life were actually fixable. 
except for the fact that I was falling off of the Golden Gate Bridge. And for a lot of these poor souls, there's probably a terrifying moment of, oh God, what have I done? I wish I didn't do it. And that's what I think that uh, the guy's doing. Because as you see his body falling, it is flailing. It's not just like a dummy that they dropped. I think they had a stuntman falling. And in my headcanon, he has now realized shit, I don't want to fall. And then when he falls down, his brother's there, I think he realizes I don't have to be my father. I have something to live for. Because right after that, he decides to ask the woman, we haven't really talked about her much, but there's a woman, a waitress that he picks up along the lines and turns out she's an actress from CRS. And he decides to ask her out. So seemingly he's you know picking up in his life. He might get a little love interest. I had to fill in a few holes there, which I think uh, you shouldn't have to, but that's how I would answer your complaint there. I think that's all totally fair, but I still do think that this movie doesn't, and this is a terrible play on words given the context, but the movie doesn't stick the landing. It doesn't because we don't really get a sense of his growth up until there's a point when Nicholas talks to his ex-wife and he says to her, I'm sorry, I was an asshole. You were right to leave me. I was distant. I was a prick and I'm sorry. And then you feel like, okay, well, that's some catharsis. That's some growth for this character. It only happens because he thinks he's been drained of all of his money and left for dead in Mexico. So it's not totally clear why that makes him want to apologize to his ex-wife. But then you're like, okay, well, I guess he is evolving a little bit. Maybe that is what he needed. Maybe that was the point of the game. And now he's not an asshole. But then, no, he is still an asshole because then he sees the actor on TV and he confronts the guy at the zoo and the guy's like, hey, man, I'm here with my kids. And he's like, I don't care. I have a gun. I'll shoot you in front of my kids. Then they go and find all the other CRS actors and he pulls a gun on Christine, this woman who is a waitress. And yeah, she was in on it, but he's holding what he thinks is a loaded gun at this woman. So yeah, he is still an asshole. So is he growing? Is he not growing? Has he advanced past this thing of his father committing suicide and he's going to go down the same road? I don't know. I think the whole thing is very, very murky. And I was doing some research and I read that David Fincher himself has said that this movie is his regret. And he feels that he did not get the third act right, which I think is interesting that he says that publicly. I mean, good on him for being able to, you know, admit a mistake. And I think he's kind of right, because I think this movie's third act really falls apart, where it just kind of doesn't make sense from a character perspective. I think it makes sense from a mystery box perspective of like, what's happening? This happened, that happened. Oh, that's what happened. But from the sense of his character, I think it really falls apart. So in that, uh, I guess, do you think the film stands the test of time, Al? I really think that it doesn't because of that, because of the ending and the the way it all crumbles. It kind of made me think a little bit of Lost. That's a show I know you watched, right? Yes, I did. So everyone watched Lost because it had all of these great mysteries. What's going on with the others and what's up with the hatch and the numbers and the black smoke? And that's why people were watching. And then there were all of these other shows that came out after that were basically clones that also had these big mysteries. And all of those shows failed. Like some of them didn't even last a full season. Why? Well, because it turned out that it wasn't just the mysteries that kept you watching on Lost. 
The real reason you were watching Lost is because you liked Kate. You wanted to know what was going to happen with Jack. And Hurley is so funny. I love watching that guy. And the characters were really interesting. The mystery was a part of it, for sure, of course. But the characters kept you watching. And all of those clones didn't have interesting characters. This movie really has a very, very drab and uninteresting protagonist, in my humble opinion. The mystery, I think, works, but I do think from a test of time perspective, you need more. Nowadays, you want the mystery, but you also want to care about the characters. You don't even have to like the character. Going back to Succession again, everyone on that show is terrible. You hate them. They are all pieces of shit, every last one of them. But they're still compelling, and it's interesting to watch this piece of shit fuck over that piece of shit, and I kind of hope that piece of shit gets what's coming to him. Like, it's interesting, and it's okay to hate them because you're feeling something about these characters. I really didn't feel anything about Nicholas Van Orton. I was curious to see what was going to happen in terms of the mystery box. That I found interesting, but him, I really, really didn't care. And I found it interesting when you were talking about rewatching it like The Sixth Sense, knowing the ending and rewatching it now, I found it to be completely the opposite of The Sixth Sense, where it was just like extra boring. I have no interest in watching this movie ever again, whether it's in a couple years or like you said, when you first watched it, when you were like, I want to wait 20 years so I forget lots of stuff. I don't think I'm going to need to see it in 20 years. I know the ending It's not that interesting of a twist or a non-twist or a twist that is a non-twist or however you want to define it. I kind of just felt like all of it was not that interesting and I really, really didn't care for it. And I'm going to say it doesn't stand the test of time. One other interesting little thing I wanted to mention that doesn't stand the test of time. He's watching a lot of like news in the early part of the movie and then the, the anchor talks to him, which is kind of funny. But one of the things that the news anchor is saying just in the background is that there's a new health care bill that Republicans are supporting, but Democrats are voting against it. That just kind of made me laugh from a test of time perspective. That's not how it works. But no, I don't think the movie stands a test of time. What do you think, James? Uh, that's pretty funny what you said there. Um, one thing, I actually just recently did a rewatch of Lost. And it's funny, you're saying, oh, they love it because they love these characters. But one thing Sarah and I noticed is there are so many shots of Evangeline Lilly's ass in that show. <laughs> just where it's just like the scene is really, it's like... Evangeline, can you like step like three steps back towards the camera? You're the left 30% of this scene and everything else goes on in the background. I'm telling you, there are so many parts where the, it comes back from commercial and she's walking in the woods and it just follows her ass for about three Mississippi and then pans up. It's really, really weird. It was just funny when you're like, I know why they watch Lost. And I'm like, well, also everyone in the show, for the most part, is also very pretty. And they're in Hawaii outfits, pretty much. There was that, for sure. Yeah, they got away with a lot. But, uh, you know, about this film, you know, I had said, I want to wait 20 years to forget this film. And I did. I forgot the entire film except for the ending. You know, I did mention The Sixth Sense. But as you watch The Sixth Sense, uh, there is really interesting things to watch. For Oh, look, he doesn't technically ever touch this thing. And right. wow, that's so well done. Um, This film there isn't a compelling scene in the middle like like the sixth sense oh this misha barton uh, funeral scene this is really interesting whether you know the ending or not it's just a cool scene this film really is about the twist ending 
And when you know that the twist isn't there, it isn't as interesting. That being said, I knew it was also not going to be a disappointing Alien 3 ending to me. So I liked this film. This film is a little bit too long. Uh, I'll say there's a few parts that are too big. I really did have a problem the second time watching it, thinking about all these weird contingency plans uh, that that shouldn't have happened. I would have liked to have seen, like... uh, background characters more uh, even the camera kind of focusing on them a little bit give us hints of like oh when they run through a restaurant that chef he doesn't do anything but you see him later as if he later says like oh yeah if you didn't uh, look at the television screen I was gonna come out and have to be like can you turn that fucking television off or I wanted a little bit more explanation of like oh this was so clever and and they had all these people in it The problem with this film, I really think, simply was uh, the fact that I knew the ending and watching it a second time isn't that interesting. I'm not saying it's not interesting. It's not as interesting. That's how I'll put it. So for me, I'm going to say this film stands up if you've never seen this film. Okay. And you don't hear from somebody, oh, you got to see this film, the game. What a great ending. Or anything about the ending. Oh, the ending totally had me fooled. You can't hear anything like that. Because I know somebody that saw The Sixth Sense and somebody actually told them, oh, it's this amazing twist ending. I didn't see that coming. And then she wound up saying, I actually guessed it based on the fact that someone kept emphasizing the ending. Yeah, that person was me. I told you that story when we recorded that episode. Yeah, it happened to you. That's right. It also happened to uh, another person I know. Um oh. I will say that this film, yes, it stands up. I do think it's still a well-made film. It's a single-serving film. It's just a weird kind of mystery that uh, the whole point is the mystery. It's not the journey. It's not like Clue. It's not, uh, oh, let's watch it for all that comedy that happens again. I think the film does still have a good mystery, but it's just not a great mystery on second viewing. So the film stands up. It stands the test of time. It's just not a great film, and it doesn't really uh, stand the test of time on repeat viewing. This is a weird one because yeah. the film isn't as compelling. So I don't want to say it's a bad film the second time, but it's it loses 90% of that cachet. And I definitely realize, like, I've been talking about this film for years uh, w- with you. And yeah, it, it's not so great on a second viewing. Yeah, and, and it is interesting to think about that angle of a movie standing the test of time if it's not rewatchable to someone who's seen it but is still enjoyable for someone who hasn't seen it. I think it's fair for you to say that a movie like that can still stand the test of time. I might argue differently, but I think it's a valid argument to have and a debate to have. So I, I think it's interesting and also interesting that we haven't really ever talked about a movie like that up until now on the podcast. So I did just want to mention one last thing because I said that I didn't really like Michael Douglas's character. There was one part that I did like him when he's talking with one of the CRS guys. And he says, you know, no one's ever been unsatisfied with our services. And Michael Douglas says, you mean dissatisfied. And then the other guy's like, oh, right, you're a left brain word fetishist. That made me laugh because that is totally the kind of prickish, annoying correcting of like a word thing that I would do and I was like ah I feel seen because I am like that and also you know doing that 
doesn't make you any fucking friends when you correct people about like little fucking grammar things. But um, I did like the character in that one moment. Um, it's me did like the character in that moment. Yes, thank you. Um, but that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we're going to be talking about another movie that came out in 1997, L.A. Confidential. I have never seen this movie. I think it's also kind of like a mystery, sort of like the game, right? I think the word to describe it is noir. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is correct. So I'm looking forward to seeing that movie. It should be a good time. As always, we want to hear from you guys, the listeners. Let us know what you think about the game and David Fincher and games in general. I don't know. Whatever. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can email us at testoftimepodcast at gmail.com. You can go to our website, testoftimepod.com, and buy some merch, which you should do. I mean, you really just should. You should buy our merch. And let me ask you about contacting us. You don't mean this listener listening right now. Not, not this one. You mean another listener to contact us. No, I mean you, the person who is listening right now. I am talking to you. Yes, you. Yes, I can see you. Yes, I can. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, this isn't funny. All right, anyway, see you next time, everybody. Goodbye. Bye.